Let's take our Bibles today to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 24, we'll be looking at verses 23 and 25. Now Matthew 3 and 4 have been introducing Jesus by focusing upon the beginning of his public ministry. Following his baptism and temptation, Jesus ministered predominantly in Judea for about a year. And during that year is when he initially caused the disciples uh, to salvation. Uh, James, John, Andrew, Peter, they, they're around the time of the baptism. And then eventually Matthew and Philip and Nathaniel and so on and so forth. And it's during this year that he's going throughout Judea and teaching and people are being baptized. But jealousy and rejection of Jesus grew among the Pharisees. And so Jesus moves his ministry to Galilee. Arriving in Galilee, Matthew 4.17 says, From that time, Jesus began to preach. Now, we looked at the preaching of Jesus when we were in Matthew 4, verse 17, and we noted that his sermons were expositional. They were expositional, meaning he analyzed the text, he announced the text, and he applied the text to his listeners. His sermons were also evangelistic. He called people to repent of their sins and believe the gospel. And his sermons were also eschatological, warning the people of the kingdom that was coming, his kingdom, and the associated judgments and blessings of that kingdom. Along with the beginning of his preaching ministry, we noted that Jesus continued his discipleship ministry. And we noted that the discipleship ministry is threefold. Discipleship includes endowing, equipping, and engaging. Endowing, equipping, and engaging. Discipleship endows believers with explicit, dependable instruction in Scripture so that they will be rooted, built up, and established in their faith. Discipleship equips believers. It gives you the tools so that you can diligently, accurately, and steadfastly study the word of truth. And discipleship engages believers in the ministry's work so that you can practice Christ's teachings and commands. Now, the strength and the growth of a local church is directly related to the training of disciples. Friends, if we are not training disciples, the church is not going to grow, and it is not going to be strengthened. That is why Jesus stressed the importance of discipleship of making disciples. In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We know that in the following years, Christians took this command to heart. The early church did what Jesus commanded. For example, Paul discipled Timothy. Timothy in turn discipled others, and those others eventually discipled others also. As we see Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.2 2 to Timothy, The things which you, Timothy, have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I'm discipling you. 
And I expect you to take the, to, the information, the teachings I've given you, and teach them to others. You know, discipleship doesn't mean you've got to go to seminary. Discipleship means you can take what you've learned in the sermon. You can take what you've learned in a, in a classroom. You can take that same information and you share it with somebody else. You're discipling them. That's what our God-given duty is. Now, when we talk about discipleship, we noted that there are three callings involved in discipleship. Discipleship begins with the call to salvation. During that first year of ministry, Jesus called many to salvation. And those who answered his call became his disciples. Luke reports years later in Acts eleven twenty six that disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Ladies and gentlemen, all Christians are disciples. You can't claim to be a Christian and say you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian who says, well, I'll become a disciple later. The moment you became a Christian, you became a disciple of Jesus. Now, when Jesus declared repent and believe the gospel, he called you. That was the call to salvation. That was the call to salvation and discipleship. Second, there is the discipleship call to schooling. To schooling. In the second year of Jesus' ministry, he called upon those who answered the call to salvation and now invites them to live with and learn from him. This invitation is an invitation to study. An invitation to study God's word to practice God's word, and to teach God's word to others. Centuries before the Messiah came, Ezra set the example for us. Ezra 7.10 says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Are you doing that? Are you following the example of the disciples? Are you following the example of Ezra? Have you committed yourself? Have you set your heart, your desires... To study God's word. And not just to study it, but to obey it or practice it. And then to teach it to others. Now the third call, after the call to salvation, the call to schooling, is the call to service. Jesus calls the disciples to save and school them and now to engage them in service. Paul says in Ephesians 4.12 that the end game of the teaching and the training in God's word is to equip the saints to do the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Did you catch that? Serving the Lord. What does service to the Lord look like? Well, it's doing this or that. No. Serving the Lord is primarily doing and saying things that build up Christ's body, the church. Think about what you do. Think about what comes out of your mouth and then ask yourselves, is what I'm saying building up the body of Christ? If not, you're not serving. What are you doing? Is what I'm doing building up the body of Christ? And building doesn't always mean numerical. It's, all, it's qualitative. It's not just quantity. It's qualitative. And what I'm doing and saying helping people grow in Christ. Now, besides the preaching and discipleship ministry, here in Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, Matthew summarizes the itinerant ministry of Jesus. The itinerant ministry of Jesus. Now, what does itinerant mean? Well, the word itinerant means to go or travel from place to place. And so an itinerant ministry involves serving the Lord from place to place. The itinerant ministry 
goes all the way back into the Hebrew Scriptures, all the way back to King Jehoshaphat. Now, King Jehoshaphat was a descendant of King David. He was a righteous king. However, he was concerned with restoring proper worship and reverence for Yahweh. And so he sent ministers, itinerant ministers, throughout the region of Judah to teach God's law. 2 Chronicles 17, verse 7 to 9, reports this. In the third year of his reign, Jehoshaphat sent his officials, Ben-Hal, Obadiah, Zechariah, yes, Obadiah, Zechariah of the scriptures, Nathanael, and Micaiah, to teach the cities of Judah. And with them the Levites, Shemaiah, Nathaniah, Zebediah, Asahel, Shemaremoth, Jehanathan, Adonijah, Tabajah, and Tobadanijah, the Levites. And with them, Elishema and Jehoram, the priest. These three groups taught in Judah, having the book of the law of the Lord with them, and they went through all the cities of Judah and taught among the people. So notice here, the king Jehoshaphat commissions and sends out three groups, the officials, the Levites, and the priests. And each group was particularly responsible for teaching some aspect of the book of the law of the Lord. The officials taught the civil aspect of God's law. The Levites taught the ceremonial aspects of God's law. The priests taught the consecrated aspects of God's law. Now, I want you to understand here that the civil law, which the officials taught, trained the people to fear God. The ceremonial aspect, which was taught by the, the Levites, taught the people how to worship God, and then the consecrated aspects of the law taught by the priest trained the people how to be holy like God. So civil ceremonial consecrated aspects of God's law, three parts of God's law, teach people how to worship God, how to be holy like God, how to fear or reverence God. Now following this example, Jesus adopted an itinerant ministry while in Galilee. The first official act of service given to the apostles was to an itinerant ministry. According to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and 5, Jesus summoned the twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Now, the itinerant ministry that began with Jesus and continued with the apostles continued in the early church. Individuals were sent from their home church to minister in other local churches. You know, Paul was planting churches during his first missionary journey. On his second missionary journey, he didn't go as, a, as a, an apostle necessarily or as a missionary, but as an itinerant minister. He went around and checked on those churches he had planted to strengthen those churches. And so he went from town to town, city to city, church to church. After his first imprisonment, he again returned to those churches to strengthen them as an itinerant minister. And he left itinerant ministers there. Titus and Timothy are examples of itinerant ministers. Paul writes in Titus 1.5, For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, Paul writes to Timothy, I urged you, Timothy, upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So when we look at the itinerant ministry of the New Testament, we find that these individuals filled pulpits, appointed elders, provided spiritual guidance, doctrinal teaching, and corrected heresy. 
Typically, itinerant ministers support themselves through secular work. Now, this is interesting. This sets them apart from those who serve as, quote-unquote, pastors of the church. Pastors, those who are involved in full-time ministry, are to be supported by the church. But those in itinerant ministry are typically supported by their own secular work. Now, that's not to say that a particular church can't give them something to help, but their main source of income is from their jobs. For example, during Paul's itinerant ministry, he supported himself through tent making. In Acts 20, verse 34, Paul said, You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. Now, Matthew, again, presents Jesus' itinerant ministry in verses 23 to 25 of chapter 4. His itinerant ministry involved teaching in the synagogue, proclaiming the gospel, and healing the crowds. C.H. Spurgeon once said of Jesus, he was the prince of open-air preachers, the president of the college of all preachers of the gospel, the great itinerant. So we're going to look at the itinerant ministry of Jesus and pull some lessons and applications. Jesus' itinerant ministry included teaching in the synagogue, as stated in Matthew 4.23, part A. Teaching in the synagogue. Matthew 4.23, just the first part of the verse, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues. Again, he's going throughout all Galilee. Galilee, going. He's going forth. The word here is parego, means ongoing travel. It's in the imperfect tense. In other words, he just didn't go once or twice. This was his normal means of ministering in the region. He would travel from place to place. Matthew's making the point. He has an itinerant ministry. That's, again, what's itinerant mean? To go from place to place. Now, his ministry extended throughout Galilee, which is 50 miles long and 30 miles wide. And Galilee was comprised of over 200 villages. Matthew notes that Jesus was teaching in their synagogues. Now, let's talk about the synagogue for a moment. What is a synagogue? Well, we know that the synagogue originated during the Babylonian exile as a place where the Jews could gather for worship and Bible study. And besides Bible study and worship, the synagogue was also a place of prayer. Now, the worship occurred in the synagogue on the Sabbath. and, And Sabbath worship consisted of scripture reading, prayer, singing, and preaching. Each synagogue had a theological school where biblical education was offered on Mondays and Thursdays. Now, every synagogue had elders, and the primary responsibility of elders was to lead and care for the congregation's spiritual needs. Within the elders, there were, it was comprised of seven offices, bishops or overseers, ministers, deacons, apostles, rabbis, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. The bishops oversaw the physical and spiritual needs of the synagogue and made arrangements for the service. Ministers preached behind a wooden pulpit, selected the individuals to read and teach the scriptures and lead the prayer time. Deacons gathered and distributed alms to those in need and cared for the physical and spiritual needs of the ministry. Apostles or missionaries were sent out from the synagogue. Rabbis or teachers used God's word to exhort and educate people. Evangelists spoke to various synagogues or congregations. And the pastor teachers provided the synagogue with scholarly teaching and apologetics. Now, the synagogue building was a plain rectangular hall. 
with a platform at the front. On the platform was a reading desk or a pulpit and a table called a mercy seat for the sacred scrolls to sit upon. The room was filled with benches on which the congregants sat. And alms boxes were provided near the door. One alms box was to collect for the poor. The other box was for the ministry. Now what's fascinating when you think about the, what the functions of the synagogue and the leaders of the synagogue and the construction or the building of the synagogue is that it reminds you, it's reminiscent of the church. Now the early church, which was uniquely Jewish in its origin, continued to meet in the synagogue. And we cannot ignore the synagogue's role in the structure and organization of the church. Historian, church historian Philip Schaff said that the New Testament church rests historically on the Jewish church. So Christian worship and the congregational organization rest on that of the synagogue and cannot be well understood without it. In other words, you cannot understand the, 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 the organization and the structure uh, of, the, of the church without understanding the organization and structure of the synagogue. In fact, if you go through the New Testament, you will notice that there is a lack of information on how to organize or structure a church, which implies to us that the organizational structure of the Old Testament synagogue was transposed upon the church. And besides the traditional layout of the sanctuary and the offices of elders, bishop, deacon, deaconesses, etc., all of that transferred from the synagogue. Now, Jesus was a rabbi. We know that he's a rabbi. He calls himself a rabbi. He's called a rabbi. Now, that wasn't just an honorary title he gave himself. Nicodemus the Pharisee called him a rabbi. And no Pharisee was going to address someone as a rabbi who was not a rabbi. Now, as a rabbi would travel from town to town, which is what Jesus was doing, he was a traveling rabbi, he would enter into the synagogues and he would teach. So we see Jesus here teaching in the synagogues. Now, I want to take a moment and explain this word teaching. It comes from the Greek word didasko, and it means to impart or explain the truths and teachings of Scripture. So teaching involves imparting and explaining the truths and teachings of Scripture. These instructions usually are, uh, are of an ethical nature or of an apologetic nature. And the ultimate goal of teaching is to equip the learners, the students, with nece the necessary information so that they can go on and successfully serve the Lord. But there are several other related terms in the scriptures that help us to flesh out the ministry of teaching. So, for example, in Luke chapter 24, verse 32, Jesus is, has resurrected. He's walking on the road to Emmaus when he runs into two unnamed disciples. They go back to, the, to the, where these disciples are staying. And they say in Luke 24, verse 32, that Jesus was explaining the scriptures to them. Now, the word explaining there, dianoigo, means to open the mind and heart to receive spiritual truth. So, again, teaching involves opening the minds and the hearts of the listeners so that they can hear and understand God's word. Paul testifies in Acts 20, verse 27, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purposes of God. That word declaring, 
anangelo means to publicly disclose biblical truth. So teaching involves the disclosing, the imparting of biblical truth. Acts chapter 15 and verse 12, Luke reports, All the people kept silent as they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were reading what signs and wonders God had done. The word relating, relating what signs and wonders God had done, relating ex agomai means to make known by full and careful explanation. So teachings full and careful explanation. And then Luke says in Acts 17, 17, that when Paul arrived in Athens, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Reasoning, dialogomai, is to engage in discussion over the text. And so teaching is, is, called, is referred to as being dialogical. Uh, in other words, one person presents the scriptures while the other person listens and asks questions. So when we look at the scriptures and we take these words together, what we find here is that teaching is the imparting of, of biblical truth. It, is, it involves opening the minds and hearts of the, of the student. It involves disclosing truth. It involves making known the truth by full or complete and careful explanation. That requires study on your part as the teacher. And it means to engage in discussion. That's what teaching is. So when Jesus is teaching in the synagogue, he's imparting truth. He's opening the minds and the hearts of the people to receive that truth. Uh, he's relating it to them. He's explaining it to them. He's reasoning with them. He's engaging with them. But Jesus didn't just teach. No, his itinerant ministry also included proclaiming the gospel. Jesus' itinerant ministry included proclaiming the gospel as stated in Matthew 4.23, part B. Again, let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, part B. Again, Jesus was going through all Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Now, along with his teaching, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Proclaiming is the word keruso, which means to announce or preach God's word. Now, teaching is dialogical. One person teaching, the learners listening but asking questions. Pre preaching is monological. In other words, while preaching and teaching are similar, here's the difference. Preaching is one person presenting while everybody's listening. Okay, so that's the major difference between preaching and teaching. You can preach and teach the same material. When you're preaching, you're declaring. When you're teaching, yes, you're still declaring, but you're allowing for questions and answers. And the goal of preaching is not only to strengthen believers, but to command, to urge, to admonish, to exhort believers to make changes, to change their lives according to God's word. Now, what did Jesus preach? He preached the gospel of the kingdom. This is the first time in the book of Matthew that he mentions the gospel. Verse 23. The gospel, euangelion, means to tell forth the good news. And what is the good news that he's preaching? He's proclaiming the good news about God's kingdom. Well, what's the good news of God's kingdom? The good news is the kingdom is coming, its king is coming, and the king is opening the gates of the kingdom to everyone. 
So the kingdom's coming. This is great news. The king is here. This is great news. And he's opening the gate for all to enter in. However, Jesus explains in Mark 1.15 that to enter his kingdom, you must repent and believe the gospel. Now, I know we've preached on this. I know we've uh, hit this truth home, but we must do it again and again. Jesus never ceased to proclaim the gospel, nor must we. He re what does it mean to repent and believe the gospel? The word repent means a radical change of mind and heart that leads to a complete turnabout of life. A radical change of mind, a radical change of heart. Now again, think about this. Teaching was what? Opening the hearts and minds of people. If we want people to repent, if we want to see their minds and their hearts radically change, we've got to teach God's word. Now, when one repents, they change their way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. So again, you know, if we're going to expect people to repent and believe the gospel, we have to be teaching them. We have to be teaching them who God is. We have to be teaching them who they are. We have to be explaining to them what sin is and how they've sinned and how God has been offended of sin and what the result of sin is. That it means uh, punishment, judgment in, the, in hell and eventually the lake of fire for all eternity. If we sum up the word repentance, we can sum it this way. Repentance is confessing, forsaking, and turning from sin to God. Repentance is confessing, forsaking, and turning from sin to God. Now, that's just one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is believe. Repent of sin, believe the gospel. What is belief or faith in the gospel? It's trusting, so repentance is turning, God's belief in the gospel is trusting in the king and what he has done. So who's the king? The king is God's son. Jesus, the savior, the sovereign of humanity, the Messiah, the Lord. And what has King Jesus done? According to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4, he died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. What does it mean that Jesus died? Why did Jesus have to die? He died for sin because when a person repents for their sin, God's going to forgive them. But God couldn't forgive. You could repent all day long and God could never forgive your sin had Christ not paid the penalty. Had he not stood in your place as a substitute and took God's wrath instead of you. So he died for your sins so that you could be forgiven. And though he died, Jesus did not remain dead. He resurrected. The Bible tells us that he was resurrected. We serve a living Savior. So belief in the gospel is placing your faith in God's Son who died and shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. Now I'm going to ask the question. I've asked this question many times, but you know what? It still needs to be asked. Have you repented of your sin and believed the gospel? You know, 
Don't tell me you're a disciple. Don't tell me you're a Christian if you haven't answered the call to salvation. Now, if you have, if you've said, yes, hey, I've, I've repented of my sins, I've believed the gospel, then, friend, you're a Christian, you're a disciple. Now, let me ask you this. Are you learning from him? Are, have you answered the call to be schooled so that you can go on to serve, so that you can engage in the teaching and proclaiming of God's word? Now, when we think about this gospel of the kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom and the king is only the beginning of the good news. The good news doesn't just stop with, oh, Jesus died, buried, rose again. No, that's just the tip of the iceberg. According to Acts chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, until the day Jesus was taken up to heaven, he was speaking the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now, that tells us that Jesus was out there proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, but it was more than just repent and believe. He was proclaiming all things concerning the kingdom. That includes past information about the kingdom, present information about the kingdom, the precedence of the kingdom, the precepts of the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom, the prophecies of the kingdom. And where do we find the past, present, precedence, precepts, principles, and prophecies of the, of the kingdom? In the word of God. Indeed, the good news extends to the whole of Scripture. Now, besides proclaiming, caruso, there are several related Greek terms for preaching. And I want to take a moment, like we did with the teaching, and I want to look at these terms to help flesh out the purpose of preaching. In Acts chapter 8, and verse 4, Luke writes this. Those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. Now, the word preaching there, euangelizo, related to the word gospel, uh, which we saw a moment ago, euangelion. So if you're euangelizo, that means you're proclaiming the gospel, the euangeliza. So they're exp expositing the gospel message with boldness. Now notice that for a moment. Those who are scattered, who's that? The disciples. The disciples that were part of the church of Jerusalem. Persecution came. They were scattered. And you think when they were scattered, they kept their mouths shut? You think they said nothing? No. They went preaching. Who? The pastors? Well, probably, but not just the pastors. The deacons? Probably, but not just the deacons. The evangelists? The apostles? No, guess what? Everybody who was scattered, those who had been scattered, that includes all the scattered people, all went preaching the word. Men and women alike, all out there expositing the gospel message boldly. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 2 tells us that John testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all that he saw. The word testified, another word for preaching, martareo, it means to provide first-hand knowledge of biblical truth. That's what preaching is. When we're preaching, we're giving first-hand knowledge of biblical truth. What you have learned, you're now passing on. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul writes, The things which you have heard from me, entrust these to faithful men. The word entrust, another word for preaching, parathitheme, means deposit truth into others. That's what we do. When we're preaching the word, you're making a deposit into someone else's life. Now, that individual needs to take what they've learned from the preaching and put it to use. They need to draw upon that deposit. The Ethiopian asked Philip in Acts 8.31, How can I be baptized? How can I believe? Uh, except some man should guide me. The word guide, hodagio, means that preaching involves leading people to scriptural truth. 
You know, it's not just enough to teach them. Now you've got to lead them to the truth. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.13, Till I come, give attendance to reading and to exhortation. Here the word exhortation, pataclesis, refers to the communicating of the commands and instructions of the scriptures so that a person can be established and strengthened in their faith. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed that word paraclesis. It relates to paraclete. So preaching, paraclesis, is related to paraclete. Who's the paraclete? The Holy Spirit. He's the comfort. Remember Jesus said, I'll send you another comfort, another paraclete. Now, yes, he comforts, he encourages, but you know what? That also is a word for preaching. So just as much as I'm being a paraclesis, I'm exhorting, I'm proclaiming God's word, the Holy Spirit is paraclesing inside of you. He indwells you, believer, and he's preaching in you. He's preaching at you. And how are you responding to his preaching? You know, the word exhortation there means that we communicate the commands, the teachings of Scripture for the purpose of establishing and strengthening one's faith. So what is preaching then? Well, I'll tell you what preaching isn't. Preaching is not the propagation of personal opinions or church tradition. Listen, if, if somebody comes up and, and preaches and they just spew a bunch of personal opinion or they just give you a bunch of church tradition, my friends, they are not preaching. Preaching declares all Jesus said and did. Preaching is communicating and arguing for scriptural truth. Preaching is declaring all of God's counsel. It's revealing all of his will. Preaching explains the biblical text so that you, the hearer, not only understand it, but are challenged to obey it. Biblical preaching is comforting those who are struggling and hurting. And preaching is guiding people the people of God, in the sanctification and maturation. Now, again, let's think about the preaching of Jesus. His preaching and teaching were both expository. Craig Skinner states that an expository sermon proclaims a selected, significant, timeless truth from a biblical passage, which begins with faithful exegesis, continues with a full understanding and analysis of the content of that passage, is shaped by a constant reference to the truth contained in that passage, and then presents the material as a relevant message of spiritual power clearly linked to the needy, or excuse me, to the needs of the hearer today. When Jesus preached in the synagogue, he followed the expository message. In Luke 4, 16 to 22, he entered the synagogue. He stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed. He opened the book, found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. What did he do? Closed the book or the scroll, gave it back to the attendant. He sat down and then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He preached the word. When he sat down with the disciples on the Emmaus Road, he used the expository method to teach them about himself. Luke 24, 27, and 32 says, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? What happened there? Basically, Jesus sat down and taught them. He opened the scriptures up. He read various texts from the law, from the prophets, from various sections of the Hebrew Scriptures, and with each and every text, Jesus took the time to explain and apply them. So much so that he opened their hearts and minds that it says their hearts burned within them. They were moved to change by what they heard. Their minds were open. Their hearts were opened. 
Now, by employing the expository method, Jesus exhibits the sufficiency of Scripture. He always focused on explaining and applying God's Word to every issue. You know, I don't have to sit down and pick an issue and then go and search the Scriptures. Well, let me pull a bunch of Bible verses together that address this issue. No. He simply started in a text and went to the end of the text. And as he worked his way through the text, he explained it and applied it. And amazingly, as he did that, it dealt with the issues that needed to be dealt with. If we examine the book of Acts, and we don't have the time to do that today, but if we were to examine the book of Acts, we would see clearly, clearly exhibited that the apostles and others sent out by the church continue to use the expository method to teach and preach the whole counsel of God's word. Now, the question is this. Should we follow his example? I mean, does it really matter? Does it really matter to you whether the preaching and teaching is expository? Well, it should. And we should follow the example because it's Jesus' example. It was the method he used. It was the method the apostles employed. And let me share with you the benefit of the expository method. The first benefit is it chains, it restrains the preacher or the teacher with the biblical text. And the preachers and teachers need to be bound by the biblical text so that their personal opinions and any attempts at misapplying the scripture can be limited. Listen, if, if I come at you just with a bunch of topical teaching or preaching, what I do in topical preaching, what anybody does in topical preaching, is take the biblical text and relegate it to a pretext to advance my agenda. And that's not what we're called to do. I'm not called to preach my opinion, my traditions, my ideas. I'm called to preach the scriptures. John MacArthur says, Teaching the Bible expositionally protects you, God's people, from theological error. From the carnality so deadly to true worship, as well it guards the purity of your walk. In some churches, pastors get up each week and do little sermonettes for Christianettes, which are essentially short God talks about self-help and positive feeling, but they do nothing for their people to protect them from error, sin, or temptation. So expository preaching and teaching is going to not only guard me, but guard you. Keep you from error, keep you from sin, keep you from temptation. When we, when we use the expository method to teach and preach, the emphasis is on the scripture. Instead of the preacher or teacher responding to what he or she perceives are the needs of the people, the expository approach allows the Holy Spirit to apply the text to the genuine spiritual needs of God's people. It also requires that the preacher and teacher work to study the scriptures. And it prevents last-minute preparation. You know, there is nothing worse than what goes on today with the Saturday night special. And when I talk about the Saturday night special, I'm talking about the preacher that waits till Saturday night to write a sermon. I'm going to tell you something. Waiting till Saturday night is a disservice. You ought to be taking that text and you ought to be praying on that text all through the week. That text ought to be studied through the week. That text ought to be examined through the week. 
That, that, that whole text needs to be worked over, massaged and, and kneaded and pulled on and so forth so that the, when the preacher or the teacher gets up to preach it or teach it, they thoroughly know it and what they present is what's in the text. Listen, if you're waiting until Saturday night to prepare the sermon, you know what you're going to give? You're going to give a bunch of personal opinions. You're going to fill it with a bunch of fluff. You're not going to fill it with any actual genuine truth derived from serious study of God's word. And now let me tell you another thing. Teaching and preaching expositionally through the scripture is going to prevent you from avoiding difficult passages. Listen, nobody wants to preach the hard passages. But when you're preaching expositionally, when you start at a text and go to the end of the text, you're going to have no choice but to go through those difficult passages. And when you do that, you're going to produce well-grounded believers. Now, friend, I want to say to you this. If you want to grow spiritually, then you need to sit under expository teaching and preaching. You are not going to grow where the way you need to grow, the matter you need to grow, the length you need to grow, the depth you need to grow, if you're not sitting under expository teaching and preaching. Little sermonettes based built around and about topics are not going to cut it. So Jesus' itinerant ministry included healing the crowds. It included preaching and teaching. Let's look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 23c through 25. Matthew 4, 23c through 25. Healing the crowds. Jesus' itinerant ministry, healing the crowds. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee. Now let's go to the next part. Healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill. Those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Again, he's going throughout Galilee and he's healing. The word healing, we got our word therapeutics from it, it's uh, therapuo. It means to recover someone's health or to cure someone. Listen, friend, Jesus did not merely make people feel good or make them feel better. He cured them completely. He restored them completely to health. Now, you know, when we think about the, the fact that Jesus was healing, it raises the question, why were people sick? Why do we get sick? Now, to be honest, some people are sick because of poor life choices. So listen, you cannot eat junk food, a continuous diet of junk food, and expect to be healthy. So you may bring it on yourself because of poor diet. Some are sick because of sin. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11.30, some, some people were profaning the Lord's table. And because of that, there were many that were weak, sick, and a number sleep. So people were sinning, and as a result of sinning, they became weak, they became sick, they even died. Now, let me, let me just add a statement here. Just because someone is sick doesn't mean they've made poor life choices, and it doesn't mean they've sinned. Certainly that may be the case, but there are others who are sick, not because of poor decisions, not because of sin, 
but so that God can be glorified. In John 9, passing by a blind man, the disciples said to Jesus, Hey, what sin did that man commit? What sin did his parents commit that resulted in his blindness? Now listen to the words of John chapter 9, verse 3. It is neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Did you catch that? The man was blind, but not because of any sin that he did or his parents did. So, friend, if you think that someone's sick because they've sinned, you've got a problem. Now, again, I'm not saying it's not because of sin. But that's for them to determine between them and a holy God. For you to sit down and try to guess why they've sinned or to assume they've sinned means you've got a problem. Because you're attempting to know what's in their heart, and you don't know what's in their heart. Only they and God know what's in a person's heart. You ought to worry about your own self. Mind your business. I want to give you the example of Job. Job is an example of someone who is plagued with sickness. But he wasn't sick because of sin. He wasn't sick because of poor choices. But so God could be glorified. And God demonstrated through Job's sickness that Job would not cure God, curse God rather, but that he would continue being faithful to him. And you know what? God was glorified by Job's faithfulness. Don't be like Job's three friends. Man, I'm telling you, you know, the friend that comes up to you, oh man, you, you know, what did you do? What kind, what, have you considered what kind of sin you may have committed that's resulted in your sickness? Let me tell you, friend, keep your mouth shut. You want to go say something? Have a word of prayer with them. Have a word of prayer. Be an encouragement. Lift them up. Build them up. Don't kick them when they're down. And you know, God can't turn around and told those three friends, yo, you people don't speak for me. And you don't speak for God. You ought to be like Job. You want to be like somebody? Be like Job. Be faithful to God, even in the midst of pain and suffering. Now, Matthew goes on to say that Jesus healed every kind of disease, every kind of sickness among the people. Every kind Pas means any and all. There was no disease, there was no sickness that he couldn't cure. The word disease here, nosos, means any physical or physiological impairment, and sickness refers to the uh, infirmities that result from the diseases. He cured every kind of impairment, every kind of infirmity. Nothing was incurable to Jesus. Now, as a result of healing, Matthew goes on to say the news about him spread throughout all Syria. Now, during the first century AD, Syria was a Roman province that bordered Galilee on the north and east. According to Josephus, Syria had a sizable Jewish population at the time of Jesus. And you're probably very familiar with uh, two major city-states. Uh, in Syria, which were Antioch and Damascus. And you, you know, remember that Paul was saved in Syria on the road to Damascus. Um, the first missionaries, which were Paul and Barnabas, were sent out from the church of Antioch. Now, the crowds not only came from Syria, but Matthew adds in verse 25 that large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Now, we know where Galilee is. We know Jerusalem Judea. Decapolis is a province comprised of 10 city-states south of Syria, bordering on southeast of Galilee and the Sea of Galilee. 
Beyond the Jordan can mean either the east or west of the Jordan, but since he's already named Galilee, we can take the, this to be referring to the east of the Jordan River, which is the region of Perea, uh, you know, on the other side of the Jordan. So we have the news of Jesus spreading throughout all of the area, all the surrounding areas. So from hundreds of miles, people were coming to hear Jesus teach, to hear Jesus preach, and to be healed. Notice that those traveling from Syria brought to him all who were ill. Now that word ill, kekos, refers to those who are disadvantaged, those who are suffering, those who are tormented. You know, when someone's ill, they're disadvantaged, they're being tormented. They're suffering with various diseases and pains. Again, disease, it refers to physical or physiological impairments. Pain here, uh, basanos, uh, refers to distresses related to the disease. So we have impairments and we have distresses or pains. And then Matthew provides three types of diseases or pains. Demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics. Now, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics depict individuals suffering in three different areas. Spiritual, mental, or neurological, and physical. The demoniacs, demonizomai, are those individuals who are under the influence or power of fallen angels. We sometimes refer to these as demons or spirits. Now, while a believer can't be indwelled by a demon or a fallen angel, unbelievers could be, Believers can be influenced to the point that they become sick or suffer. And so the demoniacs represent those who suffer from spiritual causes. We know in the Gospels that many diseases, uh, many physical diseases, many mental disorders were the result of demons. Epileptics. Selenizomai means to be moonstruck. Interesting word. Uh, how do we get epileptic from moonstruck? Well, in ancient cultures, they believed that people who suffered from seizures or epilepsy or mental illness or even lunacy were caused by the moon's phases. And so the epileptics are those suffering from mental illness or nerve-related issues. And the final group, the paralytics, the paralutikas, are those who have paralysis or palsy, and again, represents those with physical issues. Friend, Jesus healed every kind of disease, whether it was spiritually based, whether it was mental or neurological, or whether it was physical. The people brought to Jesus all who were healed, and he healed them. He didn't just heal some, he healed everyone who came to him, whether under their power or the help of another. Now hear the word heal again, therapuo, it's in the aorist tense which means he healed them completely. No one left Jesus partially healed or partially cured. They all left completely or wholly healed of all their afflictions, whether spiritual, mental, or physical. Someone noted that during the days of Jesus' ministry, that there was a time when disease and death were almost banished from the land. Man, that's amazing. What a powerful Savior he is. Now, I want you to take note of this, folks. Here's something very interesting. Jesus did not question why the people were sick. He didn't ask whether they had sinned. He didn't ask whether they made bad choices. He healed them. What a great lesson for us, folks. 
You know, when people need help, when they need to be ministered to, it's not the time to ask why they're sick or why if they've sinned or if they've made bad, made bad choices. You come along and, and help them. He healed Jews and Gentiles without discrimination. He looked at people as who they were or not what they were doing. He looked at them through eyes of compassion. Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Friends, is that how you view one another? Is that how you view the unsaved, through eyes of compassion? Or do you see people differently? You know, are you if you're looking at people through eyes of compassion, are you then coming alongside them? Are you ministering to them? Or are you gossiping about them? Are you criticizing them? Friend, if you are sitting back and gossiping or criticizing them, i got news for you. You are not only disobedient to the Lord, but you are a plague to the church. You are destroying the church. It's not our duty to gossip and criticize. It's our duty to have compassion and come alongside and minister. You know, you don't know why somebody has a problem. Your responsibility, if you're that concerned, is to come alongside and minister to them, comfort them, exhort them, encourage them. See how you can help them. So while we may not have a healing ministry in the manner that Jesus did, we can certainly have a compassion ministry. We can certainly be ministering to people where their needs are at and, and striving to encourage them. You know, there's three great truths demonstrated here about Jesus' healing ministry. We see that he is God. We see that he's the Messiah. We see that his kingdom has come. John 20, 30, 31 tells us that Jesus performed many signs that are not written in the book, but the ones that are written are there so that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. In John 5, 18, the Jews sought to kill him because he said he was God's son, which made him equal to God. So the miracles of healing prove he's God. As well, Jesus' healing ministry was evidence of his Messiahship. Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord's anointed me to bring good news, to bring the gospel to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom from, to the prisoners. When John was struggling in his imprisonment, Jesus told the disciples of John to go and report to him, Matthew 11, that what you see and hear, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, deaf hear, dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus' healing ministry also evidences that the kingdom has indeed come. Isaiah 35, verse 5 and 6 says that when the kingdom comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongues of the mute will shout for joy. Friends, three words summarize Jesus' itinerant ministry. Teaching, preaching, and healing. Each of those words underscores Jesus' concern for people. And I have to ask, do you have concern for people? You know, when Jesus was teaching, it demonstrated his concern that people learn and apply the scriptures. How concerned are you? How concerned are you whether people learn and apply the scripture? Preaching? Preaching demonstrates his concern for people to change and conform, to convert to the scriptures. You know, why are more believers not concerned with multitudes entering eternal damnation? Why are you not going and sharing the gospel? Because you don't, you're not concerned. Healing. Healing demonstrates his concern for people's spiritual, mental, and physical deliverance. 
Why are you so preoccupied with yourself that you never see people through Jesus' eyes? Why is it so easy for you to give yourselves over to gossip and criticism of people rather than having compassion and seeking to come alongside and minister to them? I pray that the Holy Spirit would move upon you and grant us a divine concern to teach the scripture, to preach the gospel, and to compassionately minister to those who are afflicted. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, I want to pause here and come before you, giving you the praise and the glory because you deserve it for all that you've done. You've been so gracious to us. You've opened our eyes, you've opened our hearts to receive the gospel, to save us, to redeem us. Father, you've healed us from the, the plague of sin. Uh, and Father, you've done so many other things in our lives. But we confess and, 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 and we repent, Father, before you that uh, we don't have the concern for people that you have. We don't have that compassion. We're not teaching. We're not preaching. We're not, we're not ministering to the afflicted the way we ought to be. So Father, forgive us. And I pray that your spirit would move within us uh, to, put, to, to prick our hearts, to, to push us, to stretch us to engage in these, in these three aspects of ministry. Because people, Father, there are people that need to hear the truth. There's people that need to hear the gospel. There's people that need to be cared for. And so, Father, help us to see them through the eyes of Jesus. Give us eyes and hearts full of compassion. Give us eyes and hearts full of concern. And Lord, I pray that as we engage in these things, you may be glorified, you would be honored. Father, we ask and pray these things and commit these requests to you in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.